0: welcome to the jury is out a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients your co-hosts are john simon founder of the simon law firm and st louis attorney eric vieth welcome to another episode of the jury is out i'm eric vieth and i'm johnny simon johnny our guest is back mark mandel mark welcome back well thank you it's nice to be back We had a wonderful discussion last episode we had you on and a lot more to talk about. What if you're a young lawyer and you're trying to think of the frames? You have Mark Mandel's book. You have a list of his frames that have worked over the years. How do you go
1: about it? Well, you first identify what the I just can't get over issues that are good for you in the case. And you do that by, one, thinking about it. You'll have your own reactions talking to your people in your office, doing focus groups, doing depositions. Uh, One reason I do depositions is to test the strength of what I think are good, I can't get over issues, and also those bad for me. But you can find I can't get over issues through a lot of different ways, those are just several. You really can't know what your overall case frame is and your secondary frames until all the evidence is closed. Now, you can have a very, very good idea of what you'd like to use for your overall case frame before you start the trial and what your secondary case frames will be before you start the trial. But you can't know 100%. And the reason why is because let's say you file a motion in eliminate to keep out certain evidence and you win, but something happens at trial and then that bad evidence comes in. Or let's say they did it to you and they won. But then you get the evidence you want into trial at trial. So you really can't know what evidence will be presented to the jury until the end of the case, till the last evidence goes in and then no more can come in. But like I said, you can have a pretty good feel for it going into the trial.
0: Maybe I need to step back one step and ask you, you've talked about these just can't get over issues. What is characteristic of these kinds of issues? How do you identify those issues?
1: Well, okay, so that's a great question. The first part of the answer is, you know it. You just know it. You know, because you can't get over it. You think about the cases you're working on, any lawyer, and you'll know what the good issues are for you, and you'll intuitively and actually know what the bad ones are for you. You may not know all of them, but you'll know a lot of them. You may not know how strong they are, but you have a sense that they have some strength. Second is, you know, it can be anything. Usually it's for a plaintiff's lawyer, it's the wrongdoing by the defendant that is an I just can't get over issue, misrepresenting their qualifications, not doing pre-op x-rays, selling expired medications, walking with their backs to traffic, lying about whether they were driving a car or not, Seeing a patient for 30 seconds after they waited three hours to get to see you, there are a lot of issues that exist in a case that the reaction everybody will have is, I just can't get over that fact. I hear that. I'm so attuned to it now, and I'll hear other people in conversation. My wife said it the other day. She said something to the effect, I can't get over that so-and-so said this or did this. People say it a lot. And when you focus on it, you're more attuned to it. So first is they'll be obvious to you. Second is that you find them in other, like in depositions. And one beautiful thing about confronting a defendant with an, I just can't get over issue, good for you, bad for her say, is that often. The explanation that a defendant will give for what they did that was so obviously wrong gives you another I-just-can't-get-over issue because it's either a ludicrous response, it's a cover-up, it's untrue, and dishonesty is almost always a good I-can't-get-over issue when it's the defendant's dishonesty. So there's a, uh, a sense of venality to it, almost evil to it. There's a sense of just obvious wrongdoing to it it's personal. You know, it's personal to the plaintiff who suffers because of what the defendant did wrong. It's personal to the jurors. I had a case where a pap smear was misread. The technician who read it, not the MD, because in the first instance, they had technicians reading it, read through the slides in a very, very, very quick period, a short period of time. It's an I just can't get over issues that they would spend seconds on a slide. And there are, you know, number of slides. So that has an impact on jurors, on people, because it could be their pap smear. I mean, you know, many people have x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs, pap smears, you know, PSA tests, those kinds of things that universally people have, or many, many people have. So it's personal to them. So they're, they're everywhere. And those are some of the qualities of it. But you could also have an exhibit be and I can't get over an issue. And witnesses, people can be good or bad I can't get over issues. A lying, deceitful defendant is a good I can't get over issue for the plaintiff. A nice defendant isn't. Every lawyer who's ever tried a case has a sense that one important factor to a plaintiff's lawyer for winning a case is whether you have a likable client. Is your client a good person? Do they come across that way? Or do they come across as a whiner or a complainer or not a good person? So people can be good, I can't get over issues or bad ones. So they're everywhere. So that's what an I just can't get over issue is.
0: How do you recommend that the young lawyer go ahead to implement your approach?
1: Well, and that's a great question. So if it's a case that's been ongoing, sit down and make a list of what you perceive to be the I can't get over issues, I just can't get over issues, good for you and bad for you. And then write down what you think the frames would be, overall case frame for your case, secondary case frames for your case, but also what you would think the overall case frame would be for the defense, because you, you have to overcome that, and what you would think the secondary case frames would be for the defense.
0: It seems like one of the ways in which your method differs from some traditional methods of trying cases is traditionally a lot of lawyers would make a list of the legal issues, and maybe they would think of these can't get over issues as almost curiosities or things they want to bring up at some point, but they're not making them central to the case. It sounds like you're making them central to your
1: case. Well, along with the legal issues, because you can't ignore them, but yes, of course, you're right that one of the important impacts legal issues have on a case is they could limit or dictate what I can't get over issues or case frames get in front of a jury. A legal issue might be the basis for a motion to eliminate. It might be a basis for a motion for partial summary judgment. So legal issues dictate what's admissible in evidence, among other things.
0: I've noted about 20 in your two books of the powerful case frames. I assume there may be others out there. And I'm wondering how you came up with these and how you might identify new ones that are not yet in your list. And I might add to it, how did you pick and choose?
1: One way I did it was the ones I've used at trial, you know, uh, the ones I've consciously used and the ones I've thought about. So which ones didn't I include? Ones that I didn't use as much, ones that may not have as much Application to the largest number of cases. I tried to put in there the ones that, like, do your job could be used if you are careful in your selection of cases in every case. And it may be the overall case frame or it may be a secondary case frame. Know your limits is a very powerful overall case frame, especially in professional negligence cases. But I also wanted to put some in there that were indeed overall case frames. But they don't have universal, it's widespread applicability. So, for example, I remember I was reading this article, I forget where, and it was an interview with, among other people, one of the alternate jurors in the Casey Anthony case, the murder trial, where their daughter Kaylee was murdered or found dead. You know, maybe wrongful accusation could have been the overall case frame in that case too, but. I was struck by this interview with an alternate juror, I think it was number 44, juror number 44. And he said that one of the things that the defense did that was very powerful is they introduced photographs of mother and daughter before the daughter died playing together, having fun. It showed a very loving relationship. And that struck me because what the jurors said was, we didn't think the prosecution ever got over that, those photos. And I said, wow, he's even using the words you can't get over. And then what I realized was there's this responsive chord that struck because it's the old aphorism, a loving mother would never do that. Now, of course a loving mother would do that under the circumstances if they existed. People snap people break. That doesn't mean they don't love their child. But that juror obviously had a very close, loving relationship with his mother. And maybe insecurities around that, whatever else. But that was his viewpoint. That's a huge obstacle for the prosecution to overcome.
0: Speaking of parents, as I'm reading your list of frames, it repeatedly occurred to me that these are things that even kids get. And then I thought about a parent explaining why something went wrong in the household. And they would use things like this. You know, you should do your job or better safe than sorry. These are sorts of things that we get even as children. And I think that visceral quality carries on. And that might be one thing that makes them so powerful in the courtroom.
1: I agree. I mean, there's the case frame I have in the book, turning a blind eye. That is a hugely powerful case frame. Because if somebody, especially if it's the wrongdoer, they cause the the harm or the danger, and then they turn a blind eye to it. It's never good. That's something that every single person who hears Joe Blow turned a blind eye, you know, the tobacco company turned a blind eye. Nobody likes that. Nobody has a positive response to that.
2: I'm getting a negative response just sitting here, hearing the word tobacco company turned a blind eye. I mean, it just, I have that reaction. That's right. You know, Mark, I have a question for you. The question I have about sequencing in terms of putting together your order of proof and sequencing. I find the way that if I do it too mechanically, the jury doesn't have to hear it anymore. I mean, they get it. You know, They don't need to hear the same stuff over and over. How do you sequence the case using your frame, and I just can't get over issues, and not run into, okay, Mr. Simon, we get it. You don't need to, like,
1: you're beating a dead horse, don't do it anymore. Where do you draw the line? That's a good question. If all it is, is you, you personally as one human being, just repeating yourself, well, you draw the line pretty quickly. You say it once, twice maybe, that's it. People get it, judges get it, jurors get it. Sometimes they don't, but they almost always get it, especially if you're right. If you're communicating the frames and the I just can't get over issues that are real, that are the heart and soul of the case. But it shouldn't just be you. So. I believe that you echo the good I can't get over issues for you or the meaning of those good I can't get over issues all the way through trial. And I explain, I think, 32 ways how to do that. And I categorize them so they're even more understandable, I hope, in my second book. Now, how are those echoes created? Well, it isn't just me repeating myself. Let's say, for example, you have do your job that's your case frame. All right. And the person who didn't do his or her job dictated op notes or wrote out his op notes before his surgeries, because it saved time. He would just, and it isn't really writing out op notes, it's checking any complications, no, or circling, no. And I actually had a case where this doctor did tonsillectomies and just filled out eight forms or seven forms before he began the first surgery. And how in the world could he know to circle no complications before he even did open the patient up? Or how did he know that the blood loss was minimal, like he wrote, before he even began the surgery? So that's an I just can't get over issue that is not doing one's job, right? So how do you carry that I just can't get over issue good for you throughout the case. Well, one is you say it. You don't argue it. You say it. Two is you show each of the op notes. And you point out where there was a circle around no complications in your client surgery. Well, you know, the testimony he gave about that was when I asked him, when it dawned on me that what he was doing was filling out all these op notes before he even began the surgery, which was... I had no idea. I mean, I should have known that happens, but I had no idea. And I said to him, well, how could you know to circle no complications as opposed to complications before you even opened the patient up or before you made the first cut? And he said, because that's what I thought would happen. All right. So now he gave me another good I can't get over issue. So I said, so you actually did this before you began the surgery. That's right. So using that op note, which is an echo of my case frame of not doing his job and of the good I can't get over issue for me, that the guy was a lying guy, I looked at his signature at the bottom of the page. I'm not just repeating, oh, you did op notes before or you didn't do your job or whatever. I showed him the signature. I said, is that your signature? He said, Yes. I said, well, what does that signify at the bottom of this page? Well, that I read the op note and that it was accurate. And I said, okay, so when you signed that op note, did you sign that before you began surgery, just like the other stuff? He said, yeah. He said, I filled the whole thing out before surgery. I said, well, so you signed verifying it was accurate, that there were no complications before you could ever know if there were no complications or not. Yes. Okay. So he gave me another, I just can't get over issue. Then the last part of that was, I said, isn't that dishonest? And this is what I was saying about depositions, giving you cockamamie explanations that are gifts and other, I can't get over issues. He said to me, no, it was inaccurate. It wasn't dishonest, which is a huge, I just can't get over issue. And then I said to him, do you see any problem at all in doing that? And then he gave me the coup Gras, and I didn't pursue that particular line of question anymore, when he said, I didn't see any problem when I did it, and I don't see any problem with it now. How do you get better than that? So I got like 10 I can't get over issues out of that line of questioning. None of it was boring. And then the way you can continue doing it is you call other witnesses to talk about it. And so you sequence that first, if that's your key issue. And it isn't boring when it isn't just you saying the same words all over again.
2: We have a problematic, in my opinion, Supreme Court ruling come out that basically says it eliminates the cumulative testimony from expert witnesses in MedMal cases, as long as it goes to the quote, like, heart of the issue or standard of care. But we'll see the defendants experts, there'll be 12 of them all talking about the standard of care. But it really is an opportunity for me to put on the same problems that they have in their case, the liability with each successive expert. I feel like there's a point where, okay, they've heard it enough. I don't need to do it with this witness
1: anymore. Yeah, but that doesn't work that way. Well, it does if you're at the surface level of it. But if you're at the heart and soul of the case, I'll give you an example, Johnny. That dram shop case, that was the hardest case I ever tried.
2: Can you give our listeners just a 10,000 foot view of the facts of that case?
1: Sure. Three 18 year olders and a 21 year older get together. My client, female, dating one of the other three and had one child with him. They go to her house, her apartment, and that guy, her boyfriend, drank six ounces of vodka by his own admission at her place. They Then he drives to a casino. They hotly protest and say they didn't serve him anything. We said they served him two rum and cokes, pushed him over the top. He left there. They were there an hour and a half or so. And within five minutes, about two or three miles away, he was in an argument with my client, not physical, She was in the backseat, but they were yelling at each other. And he is intoxicated, drives off the road, hits a telephone pole. She gets thrown out of the car. Car flips, lands on top of her. She's paralyzed. That's the case. And it was a very, very difficult case. I mean, so many difficult issues, it's hard to describe. Not the least of which was they were still living together, and he was a defendant, the drunk driver, and she had given birth, paralyzed, to another child of his. So she had two sons by him, and he told the state police that night, he didn't, or the next morning, he didn't drink at the casino. He was afraid he thought, well, you know, it's illegal to drink there. I'm only 18.
2: And that's who's going to be getting the money, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, she's going to get the money, but he lives with her and she's paralyzed. So there were no good issues at her apartment, no good issues at the casino for us. So the first real good issue, maybe one of the only good issues in the case, other than my client was a nice person, was that he was very drunk at the scene of the crash. So That became our key good I can't get over issue. It was a similar proximity issue because if he was that drunk there, he was that drunk at the casino. So what I did with every witness, I believe, my first witness was I wanted the state trooper who was at the crash scene to talk about how drunk he was, but he couldn't come that day. So I got a good Samaritan eyewitness who actually stopped at the scene when he saw the crash, thank God. And he testified about how drunk the guy was. So it was perfect. And then the defense lawyer cross-examined him as a gift to us for about 45 minutes. This good guy. Well, he had no axe to grind in the case. He just stopped. But then pretty much every witness who testified, expert witnesses who knew, any eyewitnesses, the employees of the casino, pretty much the first thing I asked them was, either on direct or cross, was, had they ever driven by that? area because it was on a highway not too far from the casino everyone had i said how many times well i did it daily on my way to work at the casino or whatever how far is it well it's three miles how long did it take to drive five minutes i'm establishing my key i can't get over issue over and over and over again with every witness now what makes it not boring is it one it's real and two There's a different personality for every person. So the jury's focusing on all sorts of different things and hearing the same thing. Mark, you urge
0: that the lawyer for the plaintiff does not present the overall case frame until closing argument. And I want to ask you about that in two regards. One is that you've also mentioned that early information can give important context for everything that follows. So it would seem like there's a bit of a tension there. And secondly, it seems like you want to play your best card at mediation
1: if there is a mediation.
0: Could you comment on that?
1: Sure. So effective use of case framing and everything you do at trial requires self-discipline. I think one of the biggest problems people make in all walks of life and in all activities is they shoot their ammunition, their best ammunition first, or the most conclusive ammunition first. Well, sometimes that's appropriate. But... Almost always, it's better to do what you have to do to protect yourself so you don't lose the impact of primacy, that which happens first, and then say it last. So, okay, how do you do that? How do you protect yourself? There is no tension there. There really isn't. And the reason there's no tension there is that, remember, the way you define your case frames and your overall case frame in particular is by the collective meaning that exists in the I just can't get over issues, good for you. So what I do is I start my opening statement with the best issue for me in the case, my key I just can't get over issue, good for me. And I flesh that out before I go on to anything else in my opening statement. What's the second thing I talk about in my opening statement? The second best issue for me, and then the third and then the fourth as I discern that to be until I'm done with that. And then and only then do I try to inoculate for what my client might have done. And then and only then do I talk about the harm, the damages, the injuries, et cetera. I do that same sequence with every single witness at trial, on direct or on cross. And then I begin my closing argument, thanking the jury, stating my overall case frame for the very first time. And then I ask a series of questions that go through that same sequence again. So why is there no tension? Why is it not harmful to wait till closing to set my overall case frame? Because that which defines my overall case frame, my I just can't get over issues, are mentioned throughout trial in the same sequence. And they carry the day for me during trial until I'm ready to talk about what they mean at a heart and soul level, that is the overall case frame. And it works.
0: So it sounds like at closing argument, you're making the implicit explicit. It's already there, but now you're actually saying it very clearly for the first time.
1: Yeah, that's a very good way to say it. And
2: it's the first opportunity you have to actually talk to the jurors. Like, you know, you can actually talk to them and argue your
1: case. That's right. And when you think about it, if I were to say the overall case frame, first of all, I can't know it till the 100%, till the case is shut, no evidence can come in anymore. But if I were to say it in the very first, because I have a pretty good idea, an opening statement. All throughout the trial, they're going to be attacking it. Oh, no, let me show you how Dr. Jones always did his job. He did his job with this patient, did his job with every other patient, did his job in his volunteer work, did his job at home. They'll fight it the whole trial. But if they don't know what it is, they can't fight it. And in my state, they go first in closing, I go last. So if I say it for the first time when they have no opportunity to rebut it, what can they do in a state where plaintiff goes first, defendant goes, and then plaintiff gets rebuttal? If you say it in rebuttal, they can't get up and refute it. That's very powerful.
0: There's obviously some good frames for defendants that you've encountered over the years. What are the better frames, the ones that you have to work harder against, and how do you deal with those?
1: Well, you know, usually they deal with comparative negligence. That's a huge defense frame. Johnny, what well, your dad told you about always look for the larger-than-life issue in a case. You know, that's what I was advised when I first started. And uh, shame on me, I could never find them. I mean, I actually knew one. I could find one, and that's only because the defense used it against us in almost every case, and that was personal responsibility. And then it became, oh, well, let's flip it on them and say that the doctor or the manufacturer didn't exercise personal responsibility or accountability corporate accountability or stuff. So, and that's better than nothing, but it's not the answer ultimately. But the bottom line is that's a huge one. A lot of times they'll raise an affirmative defense. Sometimes they won't, comparative negligence say. And sometimes they'll answer an interrogatory that the plaintiff was comparatively negligent, but they say, we'll tell you how when we finish discovery or as we go through discovery. And then they never do. So then what we do is we file a motion in limine to keep it out of the trial because either they don't have an affirmative defense on it or they never supplemented the answers to interrogatories. And we've won that a number of times. And sometimes we don't even do that. We wait for them to try to raise the issue at trial and we object and the judge usually, under those circumstances, prevents that testimony. And then in closing argument, I mean, in that casino case, the defense lawyer said to the jury, you know, we're not blaming her for what happened. But as soon as the next words out of his mouth was what she did wrong, he didn't say this is what she did wrong because he just said he wasn't going to blame her. But he talked about how, for example, she had this young child with the drunk driver and he was gambling at the casino. And he talked about how she let him gamble with diaper money. So he wasn't going to blame her, but then he, he blamed her, right? And did said other things too, you know, to blame her. So I mentioned that in closing. I said, you know, that's like biggest trick in the book. You take a high road and say, I'm not going to blame her. And then you try to hide what you're doing, but you're blaming her. And that's ludicrous anyway. But the key way you get over that like comparative negligence, is I ask for jury instructions. And in the jury instructions, I ask because they didn't have an affirmative defense or they did, but they didn't answer interrogatories or they didn't present any evidence at trial to say to a jury, have the judge tell the jury, and I've had this a number of times, you're not to consider the plaintiff's conduct at all in this, in terms of what happened. There's no evidence that she did anything wrong. So you are not to consider that. That's very powerful. The reason that case framing has such power in part is it's based on the principles in part of decision science and frames and i just can't get over issues work on a conscious but also an unconscious level i just can't get over issues come from unconscious reactions you know it's like an anchor an anchor is a kind of i call it a one way to create echoes Like a sales price is an anchor. People gravitate to sales desks, sales counters, sales racks, clothing, whatever. And the sales price is probably inflated as well as the original price, which was probably way overpriced. But people will think they got a deal because it's called a sale, because it's less. Now, that's not conscious. That's an unconscious reaction. Is a person aware it says so? Yeah, but that doesn't define why they're there. So if you use case framing, if you use these decision science principles, if you use the right framing and the right sequencing, now you're talking about how everybody makes decisions. You're using the legitimate persuasion principles of how people make decisions and how you summarize and frame them and sequence them. I'm not saying it's going to overcome core biases that have a level, but it's your best shot. I'll give you one example. Personal responsibility. How do you inoculate against comparative negligence? I talk a little bit about it in my books, but it's a basic principle of social science, psychological science, decision science, that the situation somebody finds himself in often has a huge impact on what they do, all right? It isn't their personality alone, you know? I remember, I love the Harry Potter books and the movies. And I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's a point in Harry Potter where he goes to Hogwarts and he has to decide. It is decided by this sorting hat, so to speak, which of the four houses each of the kids are going to be in, the newest kids. And Harry Potter gets up there And he's going, Gryffindor, Gryffindor, Gryffindor in the hat, going, oh, you'll make a good Slytherin. But Harry didn't want to be there. He kept saying Gryffindor. And finally, the hat said Gryffindor. In the next movie, Dumbledore, who was the head of Hogwarts, explained to him, because he asked him, Harry did, how did I end up in uh, Gryffindor? And Dumbledore said to him, our personalities don't define who we are. Our choices do. So the point I'm trying to make is that if you know that, and you can talk to the jury about how the defendant's conduct put the person, the plaintiff, in a situation where they really had no choice or where the situation was so bad it affected what they did, you've inoculated your client's conduct because it's a result of what the defendant did wrong. Now, that's unconscious. And there are study after study after study that show how the situation a person finds him or in affects what they do.
0: Mark, in your advanced framing book, you have a section on Verdier. And unsurprisingly, you use those I can't get over issues as a, uh, you know, a source of topics to discuss with the jurors. That sounds like it would get you a wealth of information.
1: Absolutely. You know, like I can give voir dire here a good fair voir dire. It used to be with like a day. Some judges only want it to be a day. Uh, but in that casino case, I think it was four days. Of wow, voir dire.
2: that's a good judge.
1: Great judge, super judge. And even then, I made a mistake in Din Dear. You know, we went through two veneers up to 90 people to get 14. That's how many challenges for cause we had. Now, we didn't use every single one of the 90, but we added... First panel was 65, and we busted right through that. There were so many challenges for cause. Many of my friends... And still, in federal court, we have one federal judge here who lets us do voir but federal court, a lot of times lawyers don't get any voir The judge just asks these questions that are easy to answer.
2: I'm facing that in November. I have to submit my questions, and I have no control over what gets asked, and I kind of feel exposed.
1: Right. It's not impossible, but it's incredibly difficult to win a trial without voir because you have no idea the biases people have, the core biases so if you have 30 minutes for a voir dire and that's all you have and a lot of my friends have had that the two issues the two things i mean obviously you need to know what somebody does for a living and if they're a bartender you have to be really careful in a dram shop case when you have sued a bartender or for the bartender's wrongdoing or if it's a emergency room doctor and you've sued an emergency room doctor or say a juror is married to an emergency room doctor you got to be careful, obviously, on those kinds of issues, because somebody's got to go home and explain to their husband or wife, who's a doctor, what happened at trial and why they voted the way they did. Well, that's very difficult if you're voting against another healthcare professional, especially in the same hospital. But leaving aside that kind of issue, you cannot ignore. The two issues that if you only have half hour, you have got to address in voir if you do nothing else, is one, pretty much everybody would agree that you have to take the worst issue for you in the case and see how people react to it. All right? Because everybody thinks, oh, voir dire is a process of deselection, selection not selection. And that's true. All right? So you have to do the worst issue for you in the case to see how people react to it. All right? But you also have to ask about the best issue for you in the case. And the reason for that is the best issue for you should be the reason, the ultimate reason why jurors vote for you. The worst issue for you should be the ultimate reason the jurors vote for the defense. So if your best issue, you have absolutely no idea what your jurors think about your best issue and whether they even care about that issue, You lose, or you may lose, and you don't even know it. You need to know what the jurors think about the key issue good for you and the key issue bad for you if you do nothing else. So much of case framing is new. It's novel. It's heretical to conventional teaching. And conventional teaching is you don't ask about the good issues for you. Well, baloney. You ask about the good issues for you, but you're looking for the people who don't like the good issues for you. You're not trying to identify the people who like the good issues for you, just like you're not trying to identify the people who don't like the bad issues for you. You're trying to find the people who are going to hurt you in the case, not the people who help you. I have one
0: question that I wanted to make sure I asked you today. The quote by Ben Binowitz, who said, you did the unthinkable, you shared your secrets in public. And I'm wondering if you see any downside of that or whether you just don't think there's going to be any damage done by letting defendants worldwide know what you do and why you do it
1: that's well first of all i love ben Rubinowitz. i respect him as much as any lawyer i know i mean other than my wife and i guess now my son too but ben is spectacular and a very different he's like a brother so look If I'm in this for ego and ego only, if I'm in this for money and money only, then there's a huge downside to sharing what I do. They'll use it against me. But if I'm in this for the right reasons, now, you know, ego is real. We all have egos. It's good to make money. You know, I make other people money on the firm too. But that's not why I do this. Not why I do it at this point for sure. Never been my primary motivator. I'm in it because I believe in justice. I'm in it because I believe that people have a right and should have a right to justice. And the only way I'm going to be able to get justice is to understand what the heck it is I should be doing. It's not about me. It's about what I'm doing. If you guys use any of what I'm saying in any of your cases and it helps your clients, that to me is the ultimate. Nobody's ever going to pat me on my back. Your clients are not going to even know who I am. They're not going to pat me on the back. They're not gonna thank me for what I did. They're not gonna be good to my wife and my kid because they know that I helped them. It's anonymous to your clients. That's what we should be doing, all of us. And we can't do that if we don't share. Now, the last point I'll make about that is, I've been trying to share all my life and sometimes it's been more valuable and sometimes it's been less valuable, all right? I'm no fool, I know that you know I have better days than other days. But every time I share, I run that risk that somebody will use it against me. And so it just makes me have to be even better. It makes me never have to stop thinking about it, exploring it, trying to identify the issues. I always have to be better because I do share. And I'm not saying I get there ever, but it's my goal to be better. And it makes me have to think more. That's why I came up with these books. If I didn't share and learn from the sharing and learn from the feedback and learn from how it hurt me in cases, I wouldn't have been able to write my books. I wouldn't be able to share what I know now with you guys. In a trial I had, they actually filed a motion to keep me from using what they called unethical (laughs) case framing. Now, the problem they had was the judge had read my first book and he liked it. And, His denial of their motion after they went off on this craziness, because they didn't understand what I was doing. He said, look, I read the book. I didn't say anything wrong with it. Denied. That was his ruling. So you know what? I hope it doesn't hurt me. I sure hope it doesn't hurt me because then it would hurt my clients. But I don't think it does hurt. If what I'm saying is real and genuine, they can't get over it.
2: Mark, thank you so much for sharing even more of yourself with us and your ideas. I don't think it can hurt anybody because all it does is require lawyers
0: to think more about their cases and their clients. I agree. So, Mark, again, thank you for spending a second episode with us. This has been enlightening, engaging, loved your books. I'm sure Johnny and I and many listeners will be using your ideas. And we're looking forward to the next one.
1: Take care, guys.
0: All right. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Vieth. I'm here with Johnny Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want to look at the nation's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription, tune into the other podcasts in The Simon Law Firm library in Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.